Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and today we're going to continue Hour 2 of Guy Talk. Guys who talk, they are ready for you. And the hotline is open, 877-933-2484. We'd love to uh, hear your questions. Put them on the air. My power panel today is Pastor Tom Parrish, Dr. Greg Borgod, and Jeff Verdorn. Gentlemen, welcome to Hour 2. Thank you. Good to be here. Always fun. Hi, Bill. Uh, I figured the first hour went fast, didn't it? It did. did. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Here's a question. I recently listened to a podcast that said God punishes all sin. If I ask for forgiveness, will God still punish me? I know that there are consequences to sin that still may result, but what about the punishment? Well, I think that they're really talking about is the discipline of the Lord, not the punishment of the Lord. That it says in Scripture, God disciplines those whom he loves. In other words, um, there are certainly consequences to our action that we might suffer. God's not always the originator of those consequences. The consequences are our consequences for disobeying him and moving in a certain direction that's uh, apart from the Lord. But the point is is that there's discipline that, that God uses to help shape us into the image of his son. And he does this from a basis of love. Because it says, like I said in Scripture, God does not discipline those whom he doesn't love. So the discipline is more, rather than punishment, it's discipline. You know, let, me Jesus... throw, let me throw this out, because I appreciate that, uh, Greg Borgon, but when, when I think of Revelations 3.19, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. How often do you uh, say, you know, I ran into my buddy Jeff yesterday, and boy, he had been rebuked. When do we see or experience God rebuking? How does it appear? How does it? How do we? How do we recognize it? It almost always comes through circumstances and people. Not okay. that the Lord can't show up and directly speak to us, but in in most of our cases, it's in a setting like this to what we're discussing, and I have to rethink something I've never thought before, or I'm in a situation at church or in my home to where I'm confronted with something, and I have to reexamine that. Uh, So it all goes together. But I want to add to what Greg was saying. The Bible says that Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice for sin. To me, that's the biggest statement in the Scripture when it comes to sin. That means when you're covered by the blood of Jesus, all sins from the past and even in the future that you will commit have been covered by his blood. So there's not any punishment in that sense for the Christian. What is there, though, is there are consequences to our behavior, and it's usually broken relationships, it's usually making mistakes, it's it's doing things that hurt us or hurt others, and that's where we have to come back then and repent and change. We have to make sure we distinguish between the Lord discipline, which is not God's judgment, it's not his wrath, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, John chapter 3 ends with the Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, 
for God's wrath remains upon him. Yeah. We are nature by nature object of God's wrath, but when we believe in the blood of Christ, Tom, that you were just talking about, cleanses us of all unrighteousness, then God has separated our sins from us. He remembers them no more. He no longer counts our sins against us. We have been washed clean by his blood. So we are no longer under judgment or wrath of God. But let's distinguish that from discipline. Yeah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Romans all talk about that very fact, Jeff, that blots it out, puts it behind him, and it it, it isn't addressed anymore. It was paid at the foot of the cross. Mm-hmm. So that that consequence of that sin or the, the ramifications of that sin, that, that price was paid. Mm-hmm. You don't have to pay a second time. It's mm. interesting. Uh, Congress today was having people come forward and testify about UFOs. And it was some of the top scientists, and some of them were saying, yep, there are people here from, we don't throw their planets or from our planet or whatever, but it's there. Here's the bottom line. If you go back to Scripture, who did Jesus die for? The cosmos, the entire universe. Those, whatever they are, is no different. You know, I, first thing I want to do is I hope I get invited to the first meeting if somebody shows up here from another planet. So I want to find out where they stand with Jesus, if they even know the name. But it doesn't disturb me if they do or don't, because we've run into people on islands and that that worship all kind of gods, have all kind of things, but they didn't know the name of Jesus, but they needed Jesus in order to be cleansed and to have final inner peace. I don't see any difference. And somehow we've let science fiction convince us that if somebody comes here, you know, wow, they're much more superior. And what they say spiritually is probably going to be much more true than what we say. And I'm saying, uh uh-uh. Jesus is the only answer. I, I got to say this, guys. If there are UFOs, why can't they get a clear picture of it? Every picture is grainy and you can't hardly make it out. It's, it's with too all bad. of our cameras today. It's too bad everybody isn't walking around with a camera these days well, to maybe catch one of these things. The problem is Bigfoot is taking the picture. Oh, yes. <laughs> I've, got a, I've got a very clear picture of Bigfoot, just so you know. <laughs> I'm not showing it to anybody. Okay, here's a follow-up question to that. Uh, and I'm looking at you, Jeff Dorn. Is it once saved, always saved, or can you lose your salvation? This is a big topic. It's one of the most common questions that I personally get as a teacher uh, over the years of people looking for that true assurance of salvation. Can, can I lose my salvation or do I have it eternally? And this is actually a, a deep study that has many, many aspects. But to put it simply, there's a few core passages that I think every Christian should understand. The first is in Ephesians 1, where it says that you were included in Christ when you believed. And once you believed, you were marked with the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Wow. That means from the moment that you're saved, your future inheritance is guaranteed by God and as, a, as proof that he's going to come through on his promise, he's given you this deposit, uh, uh, which is the Holy Spirit. And so God can never lose his deposit. He can never lose his Holy Spirit, and therefore he's good on his promise. The other one is that he says, God says that he will give you his Holy Spirit, and Jesus says he will be with you for how long? Forever. Forever. And so that promise, unconditionally stated by Jesus, says that if you're born again, you'll receive the Holy Spirit, and he will be with you forever. There, there's so many verses that our salvation is kept in heaven for us, shielded by God's power until that day. Um, and and by the way, one other big one is that he promises that we will receive a new glorified body over and over in scripture, 
often that promise is stated unconditionally, meaning that once you're saved, once you believe and are saved, you will receive a glorified body. That's part of our inher- future inheritance. So, well, yes, the true believer can have assurance of salvation. Yeah, look at Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. It says that the Holy Spirit, we're sealed by the promise Holy Spirit, which is a guarantee mm-hmm. of our inheritance. And then you read in 1 John five eleven through 13, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in the Son. He who has the Son has life, which you're referring to, Jeff. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Not temporary, not conditional, eternal. And I I, I love to know. We can know. Gnosko, we can know for sure. The thing that I see, if I was Satan, and prayerfully, I'm not even working for him in any way. But if I was Satan, I'd want to keep hitting people with this question over and over and over. Let's put doubt in your mind. Let's make it difficult. And I got asked this so much as an evangelical Christian. You know, know, what what if I did this or that or whatever? What I've come back with is I don't debate so much the once saved, always saved. Because when I stand before Jesus, he's not going to ask me if I believe that. He's going to say, Tom, do you love me? And the bottom line is, where do you stand with Jesus right now? Quit worrying about what you did 30 years ago at the Billy Graham crusade. The assurance is right now. Take today and be assured today that by faith in Jesus, you've got it. You know, one of the things that we should address is this doubt. I mean, Christians who are truly born again can have doubts. Of course. And so what do you do when you doubt your salvation or you doubt your eternal life? You doubt you doubt this assurance of salvation. Well, I think that one of the keys is to go back to the Word of God and start studying all the things that God says you are in Christ yeah. and what he has promised and start really, really believing it. Yeah, it, it, a lesson that we really need to embrace and understand. The enemy will always remind you of the failures of your past. Of course. God wants to bring you to the victory of your future, and the struggle is in the present. Amen. But God is God and Satan is not. God doesn't bring you to the past. If you're reminded in the first person over and over again about your failures, they were paid for by God. He's not the one that's reminding you of the failures. The enemy wants to hold you back. He wants to make you uh, impotent in the Lord. So the fact of the matter, if you're constantly reminded of your failures, there's nothing wrong with true conviction of sin. I'm not talking about that. But if you're reminded repeatedly about your failures— and shamed for it. God is not in the business of shaming. He doesn't remind you of the failures of your past because it was already paid for. He wants to bring you to the victory of your future. When I have people come to me now, and I do, they they say, you know, I gave my heart to Jesus at a Billy Graham crusade, you know, back in 1980. But I don't know if I'm saved now. My first question to them is, where do you stand with Jesus at this moment? Is he your Lord and Savior? Are you willing to confess him out loud as Lord and Savior? Because Paul says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I think what we need to do is get people into the present with Jesus, not what happened 40 years ago, because the devil loves to play that game. Mm -hmm. But we have that assurance. It's there. All I want to do is reinforce the reality of Jesus. Didn't the first thing we learned when we came to faith that eternal life was a present possession? Yes. It wasn't something that was hanging out there that when we finally die, we get to enjoy our eternal life. I mean, I, I, I thought Paul taught that 
eternity becomes a present possession when you come to faith. That's right. Your eternal life begins the moment you are born again, and it lasts for all of eternity. If you could lose it, then that eternal life, which is a gift of God to those who believe, which he gives you the moment you believe, was something just short of eternal now, wasn't it? Right? no kidding. All right, we'll take a break. We'll come back. Lots of time for your questions. You've got some great questions coming in, so keep them coming. 877-933-2484. My power panel today is Jeff Verdorn, Greg Borgond, and Tom Parrish. We'll be right back. Hi there and welcome. If you are a new listener, we want to officially welcome you with a free welcome packet gift. Request yours today at MyFaithRadio.com. We're back with Guy Talk. So glad that you are sending your questions over. If you're nervous about doing it, don't be. Just uh, text it to 877-933-248. Eight four and enjoy your question being read on the air. Hopefully, I'll get to all the questions that have come in today, uh, gentlemen. Let's see. Uh, why did Jesus ask his disciples to get swords and then tell Peter to put his away? Well, two is enough. I mean, that's what the scripture says. Um, it's a good question. I mean, it's it's one of these things that we read this and it's hard to understand because Jesus was not going to use the sword as a warrior tool even though that was the common practice. It was his word that was going to be the tool. However, when he returns, what does the scripture say? That sharp double-edged sword is coming out of his mouth. So don't think that Jesus is not the warrior. He certainly is. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was the Savior, and he was there to sacrifice. And, yeah, I told Peter to put it away after he cut off the guy's ear. He's not only the Lamb of God, he's the Lion of Judah. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Paul uses a lot of military kind of language Mm -hmm. in describing us as Christians, right? We're in a spiritual battle. We are to fight the good fight of faith. He's dressed us in this armor that he describes, and we have swords, uh, the swords, the the weapons of of, in our right hand and our left, but that sword is not an actual sword. It's the sword is the word of God according to the armor of God, right? So um, I think what's What's more important, I, I've thought of that. Why does he tell him to take a sword and, but doesn't want a sword? But the real sword, the true post-cross sword, is the sword of truth, and that yeah. is the word of God. And I have a real sword at home, just if anybody wants to, you know, I mean, it's a crusader sword somebody gave me. So my friend has a, a broadsword, a two-handed broadsword, double-edged broadsword, yeah. right? It's it's really long. It's really heavy. And I when I speak on understanding and being trained in the Word of God in some of my classes, I'll bring that out at the start of class, and I'll ask people to hold it and say, do you think you could defend yourself with this sword? Well, they can barely lift it, let alone wield it, let alone fight somebody with it, right? And it's the mm-hmm. same thing with the Word of God. You need to be trained in its use for it to be an effective sword. See, I think, honestly, if as teachers and preachers of the Word, we would be more kinetic, it's part of the learning style, by doing that with people, the better off they'd be. When I talk about the fact that as a Christian, we don't you know, confess our sins in order to be made right so we have salvation. We already have salvation. We're confessing them to become more like Jesus and get the things out of our life that are hampering us. And so I've actually handed out bowling balls 
and ask people to hold them during the worship service. And I go, it's only 10 pounds, you know, but nobody can hold it for very long at all. Why do you carry that around as sin all the time? Give it over to Jesus every chance. He's ready to cleanse you. Huh. Mm-hmm. Such good illustrations. Oh, boy. All right. Uh, here's a question, Job 39.9. It says, is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Is this a messianic prophecy about the birth of Jesus, or have I watched too many Christmas plays? <laughs> We're looking it up. I don't think it is. What's, is give us the passage again. Uh, Job 39.9. Okay, 39.9 says, as you said, Bill, is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? I I don't, if you read it in context, yeah. I think what he's doing with Job is saying, <clears throat> Job, do you understand who you're talking to here? Mm-hmm. <laughs> do you understand um, who I really am that before time even became um, a, a thing, I was? So I think he's just <clears throat> demonstrating to Job over and over again and reminding him he is God. I think manger is another word for stall. You know, it's, yeah, they, they lead Jesus in the manger. And so we, we have pictures of a little wooden box with straw in it. But they laid him down in the stall where all the animals were. Whether or not he was in a wooden box, it doesn't say. And so here when we say, will he spend the night at your stall— it fits the context of what these kind of things, what they would talk about, but I don't see it as a messianic promise. Yeah, I think the the key is this, Job was demanding an audience with God, and God then comes back and answers him and says, basically, who are you, Job? Yeah. Can you tame the Leviathan? Can you tame the behemoth? Can you tame this wild oxen? And uh, it, where do you know where the storehouses of the snow are and the rain are? Can you say to the to the ocean's proud waves, you go here and no further? I I can do all those things, and and you can't, and that's kind of the tone. And I don't I don't see any messianic connection here yeah. in this passage. Yeah. All right, what about when a Christian friend who is not repenting of a sin because he or she doesn't think it's a sin? What do you say? If you can, if, if it is a sin that the Scripture has talked about, then you can ask them why they're saying, I've, I've asked people this, especially in the New Testament sins, then why are you saying Jesus was wrong? He says it's a sin. Are you telling me Jesus was wrong when he called it a sin? You can call it anything you want, but you've got to justify it with Jesus, and he hasn't sent me the memo yet. So mm. I still see it as a sin. I think there's a progression that's described in Scripture. One, we are supposed to point these things out to our brothers when they are in sin, and then we are to go to them, number one, and that if they don't listen to us, we're supposed to bring two or three with us, and if they don't listen to that, we're then supposed to bring them before the the whole church. Um, and that is the progression for start to dealing with someone for sin. In, in fact, Paul goes on to say if, if it's a sexual sin uh, in, in somebody and they don't repent of it, he says, okay, then finally put them out of your fellowship. Put them, and, and that's a harsh penalty, but it's like, all right, if they want to go live like the world, put them out of your fellowship and put them back into the world. And they're going to have some consequences to that, by the way. Mm. What about when pastors who maybe were well-known and they have moved out of their church— and maybe they've moved into their own little private ministry, 
and they're saying very heretical things, lots of heresy. And you think to yourself, oh my, have you, have you ran away <laughs> from the, the gospel? And the question is, would you say that this person w- was possibly just never saved? Only God can make that determination about right. somebody's salvation. I mean, I think I said this on the show before. My wife is fond of saying you can't backslide until you first front slid. So if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, there's no evidence of that new relationship, of that new life, that new heart. Um, you have a right to question or doubt, um, but you can't judge by concluding unequivocally that they're not saved. So when a pastor, like he's referring to, and they are saying heretical things, we're not oblivious to sin. And there are going to be times in our life where we're really challenged. And sometimes we succeed and sometimes we fail. And sometimes we go down a road that God didn't mean for us to go, and we draw conclusions that are not biblical. It has less to do with a person's salvation and more to do with their spiritual maturation, or it has more to do with their desiring to be independent of the knowledge of God. So uh, it, we're all, it, it, it doesn't matter how you start the journey. What matters how you finish the journey. In Timothy and Titus, Paul gives some strong instructions for those who will teach uh, false teachings. <laughs> and he talks about correcting and rebuking those uh, with great patience, by the way, and careful instruction. He says, command certain men not to teach such things. He says to refute, refute those who oppose sound doctrines, rebuke them sharply, contend for the faith. Um, so, there, and I say this because there are some in the church that say, oh, you shouldn't, we should all just get along. We shouldn't really call these people out. We shouldn't, you know, uh, knock them down for what they're teaching because we all need to be united, right? Well, we're only united in truth. Amen. And when someone preaches something contrary to the Word of God, they should be called out. That was Paul's instructions to Timothy. I think we've talked improperly about grace for so long that we were afraid to speak up. Look at Jesus. You know, he dealt gently with the people that had uh, demons, disease, whatever, you know, lame. But with the Pharisees and Sadducees and the scribes, he was pretty blunt and called them whitewashed sepulchers. You know, and, and we don't do that. And I know that sounds very judgmental, but we allow people whether it's on radio or TV or whether it's in the church to say things that are heretical and nobody says a word. And we have to start standing up for the truth. You know, God's grace is unmerited, but it's not unlimited. Hmm. There'll be a time when you pay for your walk. And those that distort the truth and our teachers are being held in higher responsibility and higher regard. And so they're going to end up suffering consequences for that as well. And they're in the church, by the way. Acts 20, Paul warns, I fear, I'm sorry. Sorry, I'm, get, I'm getting the wrap it up signal. Oh, here. that's okay. That's all right. I was going to let you complete your thought okay. as, long as, you, as long as you talk fast. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> There'll be false teachers among you, Paul said yeah. in Acts 20. That's what I was yeah. going to say. All right. We'll come back with more guy talk after the short break. Let me know what you have for questions. There's some great ones coming in. 877-933-2484. I'll also look at my email, bill at myfaithradio.com.
It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. It is guy talk or guys who talk. If you just climbed in your vehicle, thanks for tuning in to Faith Radio. It's really nice to have you along listening to these three brilliant guys that are doing their best to answer the questions that are coming in. There's some great questions coming in along with some great comments. Here's one that says, the statement, God punishes all sin is true. Either Jesus took that punishment or we will. If God doesn't punish sin, he is not just. Hmm. Correct. Good word. Yeah. All right. Um, How do you see the devil working in our lives? I don't believe the devil has control over our actions or minds. Well, it depends if you're a believer or an unbeliever. Um, If you're an unbeliever, he is the Lord of the air. He's the one that controls uh, the world around us. If you're a believer, uh, his his power is broken. It was broken at the cross. But he can sow thoughts in our mind. He can try to dissuade us, just like he, he had a conversation with Jesus um, in the desert after 40 days of fasting where he tempted him. So the enemy will tempt us generally in three different areas, either physically, like in the case of Christ about food, or it could be uh, possessions in the case of wanting to give him all the kingdoms, or in the case of pride, if you are really who you say you are. So those three primary areas is Satan's strategy to try and get to us so that he can knock us off track. Because the thing that the enemy is most afraid of is when we know the word, as Jesus used the word in defense against Satan, that we'll become his formidable foe. So he's going to do everything he can to distract us or knock us off course and he's not going to stop until he accomplishes that. He's going to try, but he's not all-knowing, so he's going to try different angles, and when they don't work, maybe he'll move on to somebody else. But the fact of the matter is he's doing it on a regular basis, and that's how he gets to us. You know, in John chapter 8, Jesus is talking to some of the Jewish leaders, and they're saying, oh, you know, Abraham's our father, and God is our father. And Jesus says, if God was your father... You would love me, for I've come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. Mm -hmm. So if you are an unbeliever, Scripture says that you belong to the world and to the devil. He's your father. If you belong to God, then, of course, he is our heavenly father. Yeah, and the the whole area of the demonic is something that we don't talk about a whole lot in Christianity today. And yet we need to look at it seriously, because I've dealt with a lot of these issues and people. But you both are exactly right. If you're a believer, the devil's not in you, and he's not going to control you, except for what you give over to him by your thoughts and your behavior, and by not taking it to the Lord immediately. Where the unbeliever... And I've watched people do this. They get involved with the tarot cards. They get involved with the crystals. They get involved with these other things. And they literally get taken over. 
And I cannot tell you the number of people that have come to me and said, I think I made a mistake doing this because I haven't been able to sleep for years because I always hear this voice that says, you're worthless. You may as well end your life. And I have lost three of my friends that way Mm -hmm. that I haven't known since high school, all committed suicide. And when I talk to their family members, they all said, even though they went to doctors and got medication, they were hearing these inner voices telling them how worthless they were and they should end it. Yeah, I mean, Christian can be oppressed, but they can't be possessed. Right. Mm. Yeah, the, and the power of the cult, occult is real. Oh, yeah. There, are, there is real power out there. But remember, if you are in Christ, and, and anytime we talk about our spiritual battle, we should remind ourselves of this, that is greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The, the enemy cannot touch your eternal salvation, period. You have the authority as a Christian to speak for the Lord Jesus Christ out of his word, literally to the demonic as well as to other people, because you are his voice. And too often, I think, you know, when I get in trouble, when I make mistakes, when I think wrong, the way the Lord usually corrects me when the devil's going away and telling me, yeah, Tom, they don't treat you right. Yeah, they don't pay enough. Yeah, they don't. And I get into that stupid kind of thinking, Mm -hmm. which rarely happens to me. (laughs) But, but when it does, the Lord usually brings a Jeff or a Greg or somebody else in mind for a bill, a Christian. And with out, out of the blue, out of the blue, they say something that really hits me hard. And it's the Lord speaking to me through them. You know, when you look at Ephesians chapter 6, and Scripture also talks about giving us everything we need to live a life of godliness. And in, in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 6, we're talk, they talk about the armor of God. Every piece of that armor is defensive except one which is the Word of God, called the sword of the Spirit. So the enemy, one of his tactics is to keep you away from the Word because it's the only offensive weapon we have. So mastery of the Word, studying the Word of God, memorizing the Word of God, meditating on the Word of God is so important. But it's the first thing he will go after. He'll distract us. He'll get us involved in the tyranny of the urgent. He'll have us procrastinate and put off, well, I'll get into the Word this weekend when I have some time, and, and, and we don't. So as long as he keeps us away from the Word, we'll always be on the defense. So if you want to have the ability uh, to fend off the enemy, then spend time in God's Word and understand how to wield the sword of the Spirit. And that's why I encourage people to memorize the Word, not just for memory's sake, but when you memorize it, then the Holy Spirit can pull it out of you in those circumstances, because most of us either don't know how to call on the name of Jesus when that happens, or we don't have Scripture right at hand, and the more you understand that, the better off and the safer you're going to be. And it's not just enough to hear the Word. If all you do is hear the Word, you're going to uh, remember only 5 to 10% of it. If you hear and read the Word, yep. then you're going to maybe increase it by to 20%. But when you study, memorize, and meditate on the Word, all of a sudden the retention goes up to 90%. Communication theory will underscore that. So the idea is the enemy, as long as you're listening to the Word or you're reading it, he's not too worried. It's when you study as Tom has just said, memorize the Word of God and meditate on it and learn how to wield the sword of the Spirit that you become the enemy's formidable foe. Another spiritual warfare-type question, does Satan still have access to heaven? Does God still interact with him? 
You know, there's a picture in Revelation where it says he accuses the brethren before the throne of God Mm -hmm. uh, day and night, I believe is a a good paraphrase of that passage. So the picture is, is that he is a defeated foe, but he's had a progressive fall at his First rebellion, he he lost his position in heaven. Uh, he was cast down to earth, but he still somehow has access before the throne. So we actually see that in Job. We were talking about Job earlier, and we see this conversation in chapter one between God and Satan. You know, where have you been, Satan? Well, Rome in the earth. Have you considered my servant Job? Right. So he is accusing us uh, before the throne, but there is a day coming. Uh, It's described in Revelation chapter 12 when he's finally going to be cast down. I believe this is during the tribulation period, at the midpoint of the tribulation period, where God says, enough's enough. You no longer have access. I'm casting you down once and for all. And that is when he indwells the beast and gives him his power during these end times that are described in the book of Revelation. That's a good statement. I honestly don't know how much access Satan has to the Lord, but I know the Lord has all the access he needs to Satan. So the Lord's in control, and he knows what he's doing. Hmm. All right, gentlemen, uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to start in verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So I'm focusing on verse 6. He raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realm in Christ Jesus. Are we seated at the heavenly table right now? I would say yes. And in the same way that Christ dwells in us right now while we walk on the surface of the earth, we are also seated with him in the heavenly realms. That's because we're united with him spiritually. Clearly, physically, we're still on earth. He is in heaven, but spiritually we are united. And therefore we can say Christ in us, right? The hope of glory. And we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms because we're united with God, with Christ, with the spirit, spiritually. All right. Is failure something we can see as a character builder? Paul said, I want to do what is right, but I can't. Seems like a dose of ongoing failure. Well, as a former football coach, yes. (laughs) Because that's exactly how you learn how to block, how to throw a ball, how to run, how to tackle somebody. It's through failure. Nobody starts out and does it perfectly the first time. And the grace of Jesus allows us to go through difficult times so that we grow in him. And now, when we go on those difficult times, if we curse the difficult time and we curse the Lord and we're angry about it, no, we're not going to get any growth out of it at all. It's just going to beat us down. But in the difficult times, when we call in the name of Jesus and say, look, Lord, I don't like this. I wish this wasn't happening. It hurts. But teach me through it and use it to help me grow into you. It's a whole different story. Mm. All right. Is God's grace renewed to us every day? No, if God's grace is renewed to us every day, how is it limited? Okay, when I I made the comment that God's grace is unmerited, but it's not unlimited, what I was referring to is the end times where all of a sudden the door is going to be closed, where he comes in, as it talks about in in, uh, um, Revelation chapter 19, 
in all of his glory as the Lion of Judah. The door is closed. So the point is, is that it's unmerited, but at one day uh, it will be, uh, it's not unlimited, it's going to be limited. It's going to be ended. You know, I've been asked often in my end times class, it's why doesn't Jesus come back now? Why doesn't he end evil now? Why doesn't he begin to rule and reign now? And I don't have a super good answer from Scripture, but I I think I have a hint. I think God tells us that he's patient with us, not wanting any to perish. Yes. And I think that's the answer. I mean, he has every right and, and could come back today. And, and start, you know, his plan for the end of the age today, tomorrow, a week from now, a month from now. We just don't know. But I think the, that he wishes none to perish. That is his heart. He loves every single person. He dies for every single person on this planet. And he desires all to be saved. And I think that's why he tarries. I think that's why he waits. He's patient with mankind. I was thinking about Noah's Ark. How long did it take me to build that ark? hundred years with his family. In that hundred years, he preached, told people, bad times are coming. This is for your salvation. That's what we call grace. We get the truth. We have the option. We Whatever. But on the day that the rains began and they closed the ark, there were only eight people in the ark. The rest of them were beating on the side, but they couldn't get in. But they had a hundred years to figure that out. I think what Greg's saying is exactly right. While we're in this life, we have that grace. We have that opportunity. But don't presume that you can ignore that, you know, and somehow wait for the future. And then that grace mm-hmm. is going to be there because you and I never know when this life is going to be over. Today is the day of salvation. Mm-hmm. Say more about that before we go to break. I don't want this to slip through the cracks because there's somebody right now that needs to hear this. Yeah, if you are hearing God's voice today, uh, respond. Today is the day of salvation means don't delay None of us know when this life is going to come to an end. We, we, don't, we know we don't know when Christ is going to come back, but none of us know how many days we have on this earth. Driving home, walking across the street, uh, you know, an aneurysm, a heart attack, whatever. And it is appointed for man once to die and face judgment. So death seals your eternal faith. If you have heard the gospel of salvation, believe it and be saved today, right now. Amen. I love it. Thank you for doing that, Jeff Verdorn. All right, we're going to take uh, our last break and then be back with more of Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. Let me know. We've got time for a couple more questions. Send it over, 877-933-2484. Maybe a half hour from now you'll have a question, and the show will have been over, but you can still send it over to me because I'll still get it. Uh, Bill at MyFaithRadio.com, or you can text it over and we'll see it on the text line and we'll save it for the next show. We'll be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Welcome back to the show. It is Guy Talk, or Guys Who Talk. Here's a question, gentlemen. In 2 Samuel, verse uh, chapter 14, verse 27, in the, in the NIV, 
I read that Absalom fathered three sons and a daughter. In 2 Samuel 18, 18, then we read that Absalom had taken a pillar and erected it in the king's valley as a monument to himself, for he thought, I have no son to carry on the memory of my name. He named the pillar after himself, and he called it Absalom's monument to this day. I'm interested in the back info that will support this dichotomy, please. Um, so we're we? interested in it too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Every, tough one. Everybody's interested. Yeah, I, I would have no clue on this one. I'll say while you guys are reading here, I'll just comment on this. It's I. You can go to these websites that will list off hundreds and hundreds of contradictions uh, that people have discovered in Scripture, and those who don't believe in God and don't believe the Bible is the Word of God. We'll, we'll put all these out there and comment on them and point all these things out and say, see, see, this Bible is, uh, you know, contradicts itself and therefore it can't be from God. Now, many, many of them can be resolved very simply uh, by just simple un- reading and understanding of Scripture. Some of them take a little more digging. Sometimes it's an English thing, and if you go to the original Hebrew and Greek, the answer becomes clear. Some of them are really tricky. This is one I have not looked at at all. So. Well, you know, there's there's a there's a possible um, answer to that question. Uh, it's it's speculation, but it makes sense to me. Since the three sons are unnamed, and Absalom said he had no sons, it could be that these sons probably died young. And so that's why he's able to say, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm, I'm arguing the point from the absence of information, but it certainly seems to me to be a logical answer to the question when, when he's at the pillar. When we have no time frame from, you know, chapter 14 to chapter 18, so Greg, I think you're exactly right. You know, the attrition rate of people dying back then was still pretty high through disease, through a variety of things, and through war. Mm-hmm. So we have no idea if these three sons had lived or died. Uh, but here in this statement, I don't see it's a contradiction. We're just missing information in between. Well, it, it's interesting that his daughter is named, yes. Mar, but not the three sons. Yes. All right. Nicely uh, nicely thought, analyzed. I appreciate that. All right, uh, gentlemen, let's jump over to Isaiah chapter 45, verse 7. I am the Lord, and there is none else. I form the light, and I create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Who wants to take a shot at this one? What was the question well, yeah, part of that? Question it's part. a great verse. I Yeah, so does God create evil? Yeah, so this is, um, God does not even tempt people to sin, let alone cause people to sin or cause evil. What God made, we see this in the original creation in the garden, everything God made was good. Even Satan, by the way, was created good. But Satan, as a free will being, uh, used that freedom decided that he was going to raise his throne above that of the Most High God, Isaiah 14, and rebelled against God and then became evil. Um, so I think theologically it's kind of an important concept that God doesn't deal in evil. He doesn't, doesn't cause evil. Uh, he didn't create evil. 
darkness is the absence of light, and uh, he he made everything good and everything light, and uh, he do, yeah he doesn't do evil. Yeah, and, and, and to piggyback on that, evil is the corollary to goodness. Yeah, I mean you can't experience goodness without a counter to evil. So it isn't that God created it; it's a natural consequence of good as compared to evil. And and also this verse talks about create calamity. Now, uh, it might be that we're concluding that that's evil, but calamities fall befall us all the time that are not at the hand of God. I mean, just take a look at experiences of hurricanes and other things that are a part of nature. So it's a calamity, but it's not evil. Now, we may see it that way simply because of the death that comes as a result of it. But I think the distinction here is it's not saying evil, it's saying a calamity. I think the dilemma the Lord had when he created people is that when he gave us free will, there has to be the ability to respond in genuine love to the Lord, but there is an opposite as well. And that opposite is not to obey the Lord. To say that he created evil makes it sound like he was intentionally putting bad things out there. No, I believe what it's saying is that evil is the natural consequence of not loving the Lord. Get the love right, you don't have to deal with that. If you have it wrong, you're going to get evil. And does God use the events of this world for his purposes? Sure. I mean, Babylon came and and conquered Israel, and some of the language appears like God causes it, but he used it. He used the nation of Babylon to judge the people of, of Israel. Um, the, the story of Joseph when he sold into slavery and his, uh, he, there's the seven years of plenty and then the seven years of famine and all of his family comes to him and they don't recognize him right away that they are the ones that sold him into slavery. But at the end of the story, they figure it out and, and they're afraid because now Joseph has much power in the land of Egypt. Mm-hmm. And, but he says this, what you meant for evil, God used for good, right? If you knew who Christ was, and you stood at the foot of the cross, knowing who this was, the creator of all things, and he, and he becomes a man, and then man kills God. God didn't cause that to happen, but he used the worst event in human history for the greatest purposes of all, and that is to atone for the sins of the world. One of the greatest gifts that God gave us also as our bane is free will, mm-hmm. and so even in the garden, he gave them a choice. Mm-hmm. He's not looking for robots to worship and love him or demand it of us or control it. It has to be a free response. If you can choose the right, you can also choose the wrong. I marry my wife out of love, not because my parents picked her out and said I had to marry her. Free will is something we all have in this world, and especially in America, and we like it but there are consequences to it when we don't follow the Lord. All right, gentlemen, we have time probably for one more. I'm confused about why Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, but then instructs us to pick up our cross and follow him. That sounds like a heavy burden to me, to try to love and obey Jesus perfectly. You know, I think the burden part in Scripture, um, when you read the rest of the New Testament, this burden is often described as the law. As Jesus came to the Jews, the Jews were under the law. Jesus lived under the law, obeyed the law, died under the law, and taught to those who were under the law. And so this law was a heavy yoke. Paul describes it as a heavy yoke, a burden that no one could bear. No one could become righteous 
by observing the law. No one could do it. In fact, the only person who ever lived by the law perfectly was Jesus himself. Now, picking up your cross, I think, is not a burden, but it's a description of, for example, Galatians 2.20 that says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. I think picking up your cross is not carrying a burden because he said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. But it's an attitude of the mind that we submit not our will, but we submit it to God's will. And so I think that's the image of picking up your cross and following him. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Greg, Tom, any Yeah, if, if you look at, for instance, Galatians chapter 6, uh, especially verse 2, it says, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So, in other words, it's asking us to go ahead and relieve the burdens that others face. Mm-hmm. In the passage that you read, Bill, relates to the fact that we're heavy laden with those burdens. Those are legitimate burdens, and we need to step in. But then you go down to uh, verse uh, 6, uh, and it goes on to say, um, oh, no, excuse me, verse 5. He says, for each one will have to bear his own load. So how could that be? We're to lift each other's burden but bear our own load. And so the fact of the matter is is that when we have the responsibility of fulfilling our role, that we can't give it over to somebody else because God's given us everything we need to bear our own load. Mm-hmm. But there are times when we're so overburdened that we're to bear each other's burdens. Yeah, thank you for that, Greg. Tom Parrish, pray a quick blessing, and we'll say goodnight. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time we've had. We pray that every listener not only will hear, but the word will get deeply in their hearts and really deal with the issues that they're facing. Let them know, Jesus, how much you love them. Cover them with your shed blood. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, gentlemen. Have a wonderful evening, and thank you for listening and tuning in to Guy Talk today. I hope you've enjoyed it. Check out the podcast if you miss any, myfaithradio.com. Have a great night. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at myfaithradio.com.